Hi, and welcome to Being Lutheran, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus Christ and the biblical theology expressed in the Lutheran Confessions. Today, Pastor Jason Goodham, Pastor Brett Bowen, and Pastor Adam Mosier continue their discussion on the Augsburg Confession, looking at Article 23. In this episode, Adam, Brett, and Jason talk about matters of sexual immorality and marital intimacy. While in effort to keep things appropriate, it may be wise to preview the episode before having your children listen to it. Being Lutheran is sponsored by the Free Lutheran Bible College and Seminary. Wherever your vocation is, start here, go anywhere, grounded in God's Word. Welcome to the Being Lutheran Podcast. I am Pastor Brett Bowe, and I'm joined by... Pastor Jason Goodham. And Pastor Adam Osier. Welcome back, fellas. Good to be back. Yes, good to be back. It's good to get back in the studio and record our, our next batch of episodes and uh, today we're on Article 23 of the Augsburg Confession. Yeah, highly pertinent to everyone in the world, the marriage of priests. Yeah, maybe more, more pertinent than we would want to talk about. <laughs> this is one of the, in all honesty, this is one of those topics yeah. that when you read it on the surface, you're like, ha ha, no one, you know, no one's worried about that right now. But then you start to get into what this entails and why this is a lot deeper of an issue than the first glance would would have it be. <laughs> well, and I think this is one of those issues that actually within the Roman Catholic Church, which we'll talk a lot about today, um, I think it's one of those things that actually is pertinent even to them. Yeah. Conversations they're having, questions they're asking, and for the reasons we'll discuss. Yeah, it's a definitive modern Roman Catholic issue, but it's also a definitive modern Christian issue. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's let's read part of it. Uh, we would encourage you to read the whole article on your own, but just for the sake of time, uh, we don't want to take up the whole episode just reading the article, uh, although... That's cool, too. But uh, for today, we'll read uh, just part of it just to get the sense of it here. Uh, Article 23 of Augsburg Confession, uh, the marriage of priests. So it says this, uh, Among all people, both of high and of low degree, there has has been loud complaint throughout the world concerning the flagrant immorality and the dissolute life of priests who were not able to remain continent uh, and who went... <laughs> what? One one translation says chaste. Okay, yeah, chaste. We can go with chaste. <laughs> chaste. Yeah, and I, I think I'm reading the the um like the public, old, public, the public domain, public domain yeah, version. Yep. Right. There's right. been a there's been a a variance in word definition. Yes. That, that's why Jason, I love your uh, daily Book of Concord reading plan, but I usually just use that as like a the, to, to read in the reader's edition. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, back to where, back here. All Priests right. were not able to remain chaste. Yes, they were not able to remain chaste, and who went so far as to engage in abominable vices. In order to avoid such unbecoming offense, adultery, and other lechery, that's a great That's a word good too. Word. Yeah. Uh, some some of our some of our priests have entered the married state. They have given as a reason that they have been impelled and moved to take this step by the great distress of their consciences, especially since the scriptures clearly assert that the estate of marriage was instituted by the Lord God to avoid immorality. For Paul says, because of the temptation to immorality, each man should have his own wife, 1 Corinthians 7, 2. And again, it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. I like that translation too, 1 Corinthians 7, 9. Yes. All right. That's. I'll just stop right there. I, we could keep reading. You know, it goes on to the moreovers and and so on. But uh, I think we get a good enough sense there 
Uh, unless, Adam, you want to keep reading? No, no I'm good. I'm <laughs> okay. good. Yeah. I would use the word chase, though, instead of continent. Yeah. Oh, just, yeah. Just want to clarify. Right. And I would use the word concomitance. Con- con- Concupiscence? Concomitance. No. <laughs> ah, we'll get into that yes. today. Yeah, yeah. actually, we will. Yeah. Yeah. Get ready, Jason. Yeah, we're ready for it. Uh, it's, um, so here we go. The Marriage of Priests. Yep. Uh, one of the things you notice right away with this article uh, is that sometimes Melanchthon's timid personality uh, gets overblown in some areas because, yeah. you know, you read the first couple lines of this article, he's like, well, Philip, why don't you tell me how you really feel about this? Sure. Right? Uh, but to the early Lutherans' credits, uh, this wasn't the good old boys club. Mm-hmm. Uh, Philip and Martin and others recognized what a big problem this was in the church and what it was causing. And and the fact that 500 years later, the Roman Catholic Church is dealing with scandal mm-hmm. almost directly related to what the Lutherans were addressing in Article 23. It's it's really stunning. Yeah, it, and it's still not really dealt with in a sense of you know, there's there's been no change to this as well. Yeah, and it's and especially not dealt with to that there, most Roman Catholic apologists will pretend that these two things have no correlation whatsoever. And it, it, it's not like we're wiping out the, the reality of uh, sexual immorality or original sin or anything like that. But, you know, 500 years ago, they thought there was a direct connection between sexual immorality and this issue. I think we can say a lot of it is, again, because of this, right? And today they still deny that. Uh, some will. Not all. Yeah. There, there is a movement. There is a growing movement. I'm, I'm not fully versed in this, but there is a growing movement within the Roman Catholic Church to allow priests to be married. I find, that, I find it interesting that there has been a push to separate those two things because the morality of it, you know, like the immorality and the struggles that they have separating from the fact that the priest can't marry is it, it's kind of a bizarre thing to me that you wouldn't make that connection directly because the Bible does. But then you think about, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, Oh yeah. Okay. But then, I mean, in, in all seriousness, the Bible makes that, but then you think about, okay. So in, in Roman Catholic theology, tradition, is a very important component, maybe oh. even as I understand yeah. it on par or at least close to on par with scripture. And when you bring tradition in, well, priests have never married, yep. you know, that can't be a problem because it's been part of the church all along and that must be a good thing. Therefore it can't produce bad things. Yeah. can it? Well, and that goes back to what we were talking about with the last article, uh, about, uh, the serving both kinds in communion. Do you remember one of the defenses the Roman Catholic Church came up with in the confutation was, well, the church has decided to do this, so therefore <laughs> it must be blessed by God. And mm-hmm. you are really starting to see in these articles of practice, these disputed articles, that where the Roman Catholic Church is putting all of the eggs into one basket is with the, well, we've always done it this way, and in invoking the the sanctity of church tradition. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the interesting thing is you bring up church tradition, we've always done this this way. Well, guess what? By your own admission, the first pope was married. Yeah. You know, we, we hear about Peter's mother-in-law in scripture. And I am aware, lest we get letters, I am aware that Roman Catholic apologists have dealt with that. It's not like I, for the first time in 2,000 years, came up with the trump card that ends the argument. But all of these things add up. The, the bigger issue 
that we really need to deal with in this mm-hmm. is a recognized problem with sinfulness and immorality and an available solution that is just refused and it is refused that has nothing to do with scriptural teaching. Hmm. Yeah, so there's a going on top of scripture, uh, you know, starting off with what they thought was a good idea, uh, extra biblical command or prohibition in this case. Um, and there's a chance to come back to the scripture and, and to rest in that, but uh, there's an unwillingness there. Well, there's a pattern, as, as we have demonstrated and as the early Lutherans demonstrated time and time again, that maybe the big issue from our assessment in the Roman Catholic Church is what makes you holy and what keeps you holy. And in the Roman Catholic Church, the answer in, in some convoluted process will always come back to the things that we do either make us holy in the first place or keep us holy. And, and it's always alongside or in addition to what Christ has done. And so that you, you have this idea that the priesthood is a higher calling, is a holier calling than normal everyday life. And so you start to invent things for how, how do we make it holy or how do we keep it holy? And you're totally dis- disconnected from the grace of God in justification mm-hmm. and the grace of God in sanctification. It's a law gospel issue, just yeah. like, you know, basically every issue yeah, we've every, dealt with. Every other issue, but, yeah. But in terms of, you know, you, you lose sight of what the gospel actually accomplished when you forget, oh, yes, it did save you, but it also is that which carries you along, you know, even after you're saved, not something that, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a law gospel issue, and oddly enough, it's also a Gnostic issue. The, the idea that the physical relationship between husband and wife or physical intercourse, somehow it makes you unholy. And, and this is we're going to get there probably in the next episode. This is what gets us into the modern American church, and it keeps us in this article from kind of rolling our eyes and going, ah, ha, ha, LOL, the Roman Catholic Church being the Roman Catholic Church. It's these misconstrued ideas of purity, Mm-hmm. What is pure sure. and what is impure, yeah. and the the idea that uh, you know sexual intimacy on its own, apart from context, is pure or impure, and no, that's wrong. That's gnostic to think that this physical thing is impure because it's physical and because it it, is so tied to so many other things, uh, what it's going to end up being as we examine it, it's a vocational issue. Vocation. (laughs) And and probably not a vocational issue in any other way that we've talked about vocation on this show. Yeah. That's an interesting point. One of the things I think we got to do on on the front end, there is a biblical basis for the Roman Catholic argument in the sense that Paul talks about I wish that everyone was unmarried, even as I am, he says, in the sense that there is an ability to focus on the the ministry of the church at hand. So I I have a friend who's a Catholic priest, and I remember talking to him. I said, do you think priests should be allowed to marry? And and he was part of the the canon law, kind of, he went to study canon law in Rome and and a very intelligent guy and very well-versed on this sort of thing. And I said, you, you deal with the investigation to some degree of, of these individuals who have been accused. Do you think priests should be allowed to marry? He said, absolutely not. And he cited that context or that reason 
as why he didn't think priests should marry. So it's okay not to marry. We want, we want to be clear on that, and there is a biblical reason for that. But there's a huge... There's uh, a big difference between that and saying they must not marry. Correct. Yeah. There's a huge difference there. There's a huge caveat. There's a huge yet or however there. Well, yeah, and there's a couple of things. There's a couple of threads that are weaving through each other in all of this conversation. Uh, the first is that chastity is a gift, right? Chastity is not the norm. You know, so when Paul says, I wish that everyone could be as I am, he's recognizing that most people can't be chaste in living the life of singlehood. And in fact, the, the New Testament goes on, uh, it, it is likely that the, the talk of eunuchs in the New Testament overlaps this issue so that some people in Paul's time, in a desire to be chaste, actually made themselves eunuchs to help with that. And, and Paul goes on to teach that chastity is good. It's a good thing, and we should celebrate those who are single uh, by vocation as a gift to the church. And support them in that gift. And support them. Help them in that gift. Mm -hmm. And welcome them and befriend them. The other thing we have to clarify, and this goes back to my Gnostic comments, is that chastity and abstinence are not the same term, and in generic American purity culture, treat them as the same term. So if you are abstinent... Uh, from sexual immorality as a single person, you're being chaste. If you're married and only having uh, sexual intimacy with your wife, you're also being chaste. And so so, uh, uh, abstinence does not have a one-for-one overlap with chastity. Correct. Hmm. Yeah, that that's helpful to clarify that because, uh, as as our listeners know, we're we us all of us were uh, in the '90s were a big decade in our life oh, of, of just all the references we make, and uh, so yeah, there's a sense of you know we we read I Kissed Dating Goodbye and and uh, all that, and maybe this is not the time to talk about that kind of stuff, but but maybe uh, it is, but maybe it is, <laughs> yeah, right. Well, right. we read I Kiss Dating Goodbye, which is kind of like the, the big bang of purity culture in, in the 90s. Uh, we all had friends who had the purity ring, mm-hmm. you know, the, saving myself. Married to Jesus. Married to Jesus kind of a thing. Yeah. Uh, and and what, that, what purity culture of the 90s has morphed into is this horrible, awful discussion on modesty. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and we, we get into this and... Going back to the Roman Catholic issue, what you end up with is you end up with individuals who are so convinced of their righteousness that temptation or sources of temptation end up being someone else's problem. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where the whole modesty thing gets muddled in American Christianity, American Christian purity culture. You it, caused me to stumble. You caused yeah. me to stumble. Yeah, and, and, and that's what those books were about. Yeah. Those books were about how to best keep yourself pure. And a lot of times it was a looking outside. It was um, the, the comments that have been made, and this is maybe a comment that if you have younger listeners, um, you might want to jump in maybe 30 seconds down the road. But the idea is it's the wife's job to make sure that her husband is so well satisfied that he has no temptation whatsoever to flee. And that reduces a woman's identity and vocation to 
a physical sexual object. Uh, the same thing, you hear the same, same argument in different ways, that it's that woman's job to dress a certain way so that I'm not tempted. And it's pointing the finger outside of oneself. Yeah, I just think of those examples. When I think of the purity culture, when I think the oh. book, when I, when I go back to all that, it's a, it's a, a very, um, it's a disgusting way to look at women and, and, and knowing and understanding that women especially are, not women especially are the, the children of God, but women especially <laughs> are the ones yeah. targeted on this. Yeah. Yeah. They, they are just as much. They bear the burden. The, the, you know, they are just as much a child of God, redeemed creatures uh, you know, in Christ, all are one in Christ. Right? That whole thing, they, they are unduly and unfairly singled out. Well, and, and the problem with all of this from a biblical perspective is it devolves into a blame game and it devolves into a guilt culture. And, and what it prevents the church from doing is having an actual, honest, biblical conversation about what is modest, because in fact, we live in a very immodest culture, mm -hmm. you know, where, where, where not only is modesty shunned, but immodesty is flaunted and celebrated. And, and there are lines and there are boundaries and, and, and there are guidelines for all of this. But uh, the way the church has responded in un unhealthy ways to this has made it almost possible to get there. It, it, it's there are so many weeds we have to wade through and clarify mm -hmm. to the get to position. Let's talk about actual modesty. Let's talk about actual humility. Let's talk about what love for neighbor looks like right here. And, and what we've done is we skipped right over and we've put the love for neighbor burden almost wholly on females in purity culture. Mm -hmm. And and we've completely uh, in scare quotes absolved males from loving their neighbor, the, the females they run into, where instead we've allowed males to objectify females in almost every area, even in the name of piety. And we've said, females, you need to love your guy friends in this way. And, and doing that really makes it hard to preach the gospel. It does. It, mm. it, it really mm. makes it difficult. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you suppose that in this case, it, it, it was hard to preach the gospel in the context of the marriage of priests in, no. in a similar way? Oh, exactly. And, and, and it starts with, it goes all the way back to that works righteousness thing that I mentioned, where if, if you are in an environment where the things that I do make me righteous, keep me righteous, or disqualify me from righteousness. Mm. All of those are important. All of those are three separate issues, and all of them are important. Then there's no room for a clear gospel presentation mm. because there's no room for the completed work of Christ. I'm, I'm always worried about my own condition. And, and, and what I will say in, in the trigger for this now, the trigger for this, if you... Are disagreeing if your response to hearing those things is well, that means we don't care about holiness or or sin at all. Then you're in that culture because that's not what the gospel is about. The gospel is about repenting of our sin and then letting Christ pay for our sin, letting Christ cover for our sin. Well, what about good works? What about all that? That flows out of righteousness, in love for neighbors, so that my good works are never done for me. They're never done to my credit. They're never done for my benefit. So 
instead of becoming a Gnostic thing where that's just evil because it's fleshly or becoming a second law unto ourselves that we, and it's kind of a Mishnah thing almost. Yeah. I think that the, mm. um, the Mishnah was that set of rules that the Pharisees had that were there only so they had a hedge so that they didn't accidentally break a rule, right? So if I can't cross the line, you know, 20 yards down the road, I'm not going to take another step because if I don't take another step, I certainly can't cross the road down there. That whole, it's either a Gnostic thing where it just becomes evil in of itself. It becomes a vote, uh, a, uh, a, um, the self-righteousness thing where a self-made law, the, the antidote, uh, yeah, the antidote to that, not the anecdote. I almost said that <laughs> the antidote to that, um, is vocation. Exactly what you're saying. Love yep. for neighbor. Yeah. And when we start to understand all of these, these situations, priesthood, marriage, sexuality, all of these things in the lens, through the lens of vocation, it completely changes the conversation. It completely changes the game. And interestingly enough, if you wouldn't believe it, Scripture actually speaks to that pretty clearly. Well, and it, in a vocational issue, we wind it back to it's a law and gospel issue. And in a law and gospel issue, you remember that the law is given for us to confess our sins so that it might be forgiven. And then the law is given as a guide for us to not only recognize what God has declared holy and unholy, inbounds and out of bounds, but a guide for us as a way to love our neighbor. And, and again, like I said, once you delve into this purity culture, it becomes almost impossible to, to uh, talk about specific issues because there's so much baggage. So, you know, we all are in some way, shape, or form connected with a Christian college, the Free Lutheran Bible College. Uh, we all in some way and form have been to Bible camps. And, and, you know, one of the common objections to this is, you know, you have to have some kind of standard or dress code at, at Christian gatherings, especially Christian gatherings of young people. Well, uh, if we abandon purity culture altogether, then, well, we shouldn't have dress codes. Or on the other side, people who are like, well, we need a dress code. Well, we can talk about that as because the principle is that everything be done decently in good order is that we have to do our best to have a reasonable standard to operate as a guideline so that this doesn't become the Wild West. Now, I think it's fair. A lot of the guidelines that are out there uh, in our own circles and in Christian circles, uh, only females have dress codes. The the ruler that uh, is applied to them. (laughs) I I have to interrupt here because literally today I was going through our handbook and the big topic of conversation is always dress code. Yep. And it, it's interesting how when we're not thinking in terms of big picture, what is the main goal here? What is the, the purpose of you know the guide? What, what is the principle that we can follow? Modesty. God does call us to modesty. And one of the things I've been fighting against is that you're exactly right. It's always about what the, the women have to do. And it's, and it's always dependent on style. I've noticed that. When I was here before 10 years ago working in the dorm, low-cut tops were the thing. And so you had to have this fist. And so you got this measuring thing. Now, that's out, but short shorts are in. So now we have to have inseam lengths and all this stuff. But what I, I, I did to kind of incorporate this to talk about modesty is this really applies on both sides. There are modesty considerations on both sides for men and for women, and it's not done in order to gain our righteousness. It's done out of love for neighbor. It's done out of love for neighbor. And again, I think the church poo-poos this idea 
of the 1 Corinthians 14.40 principle. Let all things be done decently and in order. And I, I'm going to... Dr. Know, we're, we're Yeah, we're, we're getting out of... We're, we're getting yeah, to the end of the episode. Right, we're getting yes. out. But I, I want to chase this rabbit trail just for a second to, to illustrate the principle, okay? Uh, I am the pastor of a very, very small church. Right now, according to my numbers for the year, we are averaging uh, 48 on a Sunday, Okay, so that's a small church, just under 50 on a Sunday. Okay, uh, in my church, I don't do new members classes because a lot of times that would have zero in it or it would have one. And so when I have prospective members wanting to join, I meet with them based on their context. If they're transferring into my church from another AFLC congregation where I'm a, a, a friend of the pastor, there, there's very little. You know, I will, I will spend 10 minutes with them going over membership guidelines. Uh, if they're coming from a completely different Christian tradition or coming in as previously unchristian, uh, I do basically the equivalent of adult confirmation with them, and it takes almost a year. Uh, so there's no need for a member class for me. If I was a church of 450, 500 people, where reasonably every membership period, you have 20, 25, 30 people wanting to join, and maybe even multiple times a year, that is done. Now, the macro on that is there is no real difference between my church and the big church. But the big church does membership classes because that needs to be handled in the order that best fits that church. And that's exactly what I'm doing. Now we get to the realm of dress code or of, of standards like this. It's the exact same thing. If we're dealing with a uh, small youth group, you, you might not need to have a, a code of conduct written down. You can, you know, if someone's out of line, you approach them individually and you walk through them with that. And it's different for each person. If we're talking about like our national youth convention, which regularly gets 2000 kids, the code of conduct is necessary, right? Just to provide us with some sort of basic guideline. Now, if all of that's done in the realm of vocation and all of that's done under the, the biblical standard of modesty, and, and then it's all fine and well and good. But if it's done because of some sort of objectification and fear of that, then we're going to run into problems all the time. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, uh, it's <laughs> awkward to... <laughs> place to stop, but we're, we're there, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, we, we should probably wrap up. Uh, great discussion, guys. Uh, a lot of things to chew on and consider. Uh, we'll have to pick it up next time as we uh, continue on our discussion of our Article 23 of the Augsburg Confession. So we'll see you next time. Great. Thank you so much for joining us. Please look us up on the web at beinglutheran.com. Also, invite a friend to check us out on Spotify and iTunes. Please join us next week as Pastor Jason, Pastor Brett, and Pastor Adam continue their discussion on Article 23 of the Augsburg Confession. For the latest from the Free Lutheran Bible College and Seminary in Plymouth, Minnesota, visit flbc.edu. God bless you and have a great week.